It's December 1940, and people are flocking to buy the newest issue of Timely Comics. This comic book is flying off the shelf, and it's very easy for anyone who's seen it to know why. Because on the cover, in bright splashes of red, white, and blue, is an image that is impossible to forget. Captain America punching Adolf Hitler right in the kisser. This comic, of course, is Captain America Comics number one, and it's our first time meeting Cap. And seriously, what an entrance. I mean, let's look at this cover for a second. Lorraine, one of the things that jumps out at me is the fact that Cap is totally surrounded by Nazis. They're shooting pistols and machine guns at him, but you know, he doesn't care. Something about him is brave enough to storm right into this Nazi stronghold and punch the leader of the Third Reich straight in the face. Something that is so incredible about this image as well is it has a real patriotic vibe to it. Cap is this symbol of impenetrable strength. And we get that vibe that we know about Captain America of his honor and his Boy Scout personality with a twinkle in his eye. He looks like the dashing hero that you would see in the cinema. Right, so Cap is swooping into this room full of Nazis. Swastikas are everywhere. And by punching Hitler, he's sending a very clear message to the American public. You're in danger, and this is the hero that's going to save you. Yeah, I'd say that message is pretty clear. And in the weeks after it comes out, this comic gets people talking. But not in the way that you might think. Nope, because this is before America has even gotten involved in World War II. And there are readers who see Captain America clocking Hitler in the face, and they get really upset. Welcome to Marvel's Declassified. I'm Lorraine Sink. And I'm Evan Narciss. And today we're getting into some very real territory. We're exploring the questions that were on our creators' minds when they drafted that first image of Captain America. Like, when there is a huge global conflict, how do you address it in your stories? How do you communicate your values? How do you take a stand with your art? Yeah, Lorraine, they're big questions and they're complicated questions because while Marvel's comics have always been meant to entertain, of course, they're also a perfect medium for some of the messy moral dilemmas of war. For sure. And for our writers and our artists, these war stories have always really been personal. I mean, look at the co-creators of Captain America. Jack the King Kirby, and the legendary Joe Simon. They created one of Marvel's longest-running and most iconic heroes. And, like Captain America, they both would defend our nation in World War II. War wasn't just something that they happened to write about from afar. Like so many of Marvel's early creators, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon came from the families of Jewish immigrants— and really early on, they started to hear about the horrors unfolding in Europe. An event called Kristallnacht had already occurred um, in Europe in, uh, I think it was 1938. It was kind of considered the start of the Holocaust. So I think, you know, I think that was very much in their minds. That's Neil Kirby, Jack Kirby's son. My father's mindset was that he always hated bullies. You know, he just, he just viewed Hitler as a boy. So the incentive was there for my father and Joe, you know, 
creatively to come up with the character. This really set Captain America apart from the beginning. He was a real guy facing a very real enemy, an enemy who Jack Kirby and Joe Simon had personal stakes in defeating. So here you come up with somebody who is basically, you know, your little skinny kid from Brooklyn, you know, and give him some super sauce and make him a hero. So it did kind of fit into what was going on at the time. And it fit very much into the psyche of the way my father and Joe were thinking. So it seems to me that by the time they were working on Captain America, Jack and Joe had a great collaborative relationship going, huh? Absolutely. They were young artists hustling and trying to make a life for themselves in New York City. Well, they both did a lot of everything. I love imagining the two of them getting started as collaborators, churning out art, getting it done, maybe ordering some lunch. Right. And I think it's incredible to think about how fruitful those early days were. But at the same time, they were facing some pretty complicated times. Yeah, Lorraine, you know, things were tough in the 1940s. Ad agencies and other illustration fields generally weren't so welcoming to Jewish folks. It was very hard for uh, Jews to break into the industry, and primarily, you know, in, in the management part. It's pretty remarkable to look at the work that these guys did, knowing what an uphill climb it was. Right. You know, they're facing prejudices and at the same time trying to, like, sharpen their old skills as storytellers. How does that get us to Captain America? Well, by 1940, Joe Simon lands a job at Timely Comics. He's working for publisher Martin Goodman, and he taps Jack Kirby to work with him on a brand new superhero. And while a lot of other superheroes at the time are fighting fictional street villains, Jack and Joe decide to make Captain America's enemy as real as they come. He just thought it was, you know, just so wrong for somebody, you know, whether you're physically bigger or or whatever the reason you know, to pick on somebody or demean them or physically or emotionally for no reason other to be mean, basically. He just saw that as so wrong. And in this case, you know, punching Hitler was a good solution to the problem. From day one, Captain America has been about tackling injustice head on. And Neil told me that this idea had been passed along through the Kirby family. He's always been the family favorite. And I I don't know if my father would, would have picked a favorite <laughs> being politically correct, but uh, I, think, I think it would have been his as well, just because the character stood for a lot of what he stood for. So Captain America Comics number one comes out, and it's a hit. And remember, this was almost a whole year before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. America wasn't even involved in the war yet. Not only that, but this comic doing so well is also sort of surprising because a lot of people in the country didn't want to get involved in another war. World War I was still kind of fresh in people's minds. With that in mind, you have to look at Captain America Comics number one and see it as this huge political statement. Honestly, it was a risky one too. Simon and Kirby were saying loud and clear that Hitler and the Nazis were enemies of the United States. And they were also saying that the United States should stand up and fight. That was a really radical thing to say, you know? And it didn't end with the cover. Inside the comic itself, we see Nazis portrayed in some really grotesque and really lurid ways. They look monstrous, subhuman. 
brutish. Yeah, no, they really do. They are very grotesque and they have fangs and sometimes they're like kind of small and creepy and looming. Yeah. But it's strange because that wasn't too long after the German-American Bund organized a massive rally of Nazis just down the block at Madison Square Garden. We are not preaching race hatred, but race recognition and the will to the preservation of our own race. More than 20,000 people attended, and it was billed as pro-Americanism. The Jew, for instance, is welcome to every one of his characteristics so far as we are concerned. If he could only be moved to remain among his own unassimilable kind with them. The whole arena was lined in the United States. Keep in mind, this is in the United States. This whole arena is lined with huge swastikas along with the American flag. Those two flags being next to each other is, gosh, it's, it's just chilling to think about back in 1940. And, and that symbolism was like a clear signifier of just how the Nazis back then were not exactly hiding in the United States. The only true internationalist, the only ever homeless parasite, racially so mixed and consequently torn within himself as to be at home to a degree everywhere and truly at home nowhere is the Jew. Hearing this makes me feel sick. Yeah, it's... uh... It lets you know that hatred doesn't necessarily go away. It's always lying in wait. But people were standing up to this hatred. A lot of people, actually. Over 100,000 protesters also showed up to oppose the Nazi rally versus the 20,000 that attended. And some of the attendees themselves reported not necessarily agreeing with what was being said. It's also worth noting that the German-American Bund, the organizers of this rally, had been declining in popularity for years. So it wasn't like New Yorkers were all just okay with this happening, not by a long shot. But still, it is really scary to think about. And I think it makes Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's creation of Captain America all the more important because you want to have a figure like that ready to stand up to hatred when it does rear its ugly head. When the first issue of Captain America comes out, Simon and Kirby are suddenly flooded with threatening letters and phone calls. Oh man, that's not good. American Nazis are loitering outside of their office building on 42nd Street. And, you know, Martin Goodman is not having an easy day either. He is the publisher of not just Timely Comics, but of many magazines. And he's really putting himself on the line for what ends up being quite a controversial story. They did face a lot of harassment. You know, from what my dad said, it was, you know, he'd get these phone calls and he'd basically say, well, you know, come on by and I'll beat the crap out of you. So, uh uh, fortunately, nothing uh, nothing ever happened. But there was definitely harassment and threats. Things got so bad that apparently the NYPD started patrolling outside their office, keeping an eye out for people who might want to do harm to Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Which is pretty wild to think that a comic book creator had their own security detail. 
Yeah, it's crazy because it went all the way up to the mayor, too. Fiorello H. LaGuardia, the legendary mayor of New York City, was apparently a huge comic book fan and was even featured in some timely comics from this era. The story goes that he called up Joe Simon personally to promise his protection. We have no record of it, but at this point, it's a Marvel legend, so we're going with it. And that's incredibly fitting, right? (laughs) I mean, you can definitely say that Captain America punching Nazis, that was Simon and Kirby's wish for the country. Absolutely. And you know, Lorraine, what's wild is that a month later, Captain America Comics number two comes out. And it's Cap busting into Hitler's stronghold. He's not punching Hitler directly in the face this time, but he might as well be. (laughs) This cover shows Hitler flinching away from Cap as he bursts onto the scene. So, you know, Simon and Kirby, they're definitely not backing away from all this controversy that had been started. No, I love that they sort of double down. Yeah, so the great thing is that Simon and Kirby's vision, this patriotic call to action, that only grew as the war escalated. And once we did get involved in World War II, things grew to a whole new level. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. I can only imagine what it felt like to hear those words as an American citizen, knowing that a lot of your men would be going to war. And like a lot of comic creators, Jack Kirby also served in World War II. Well, um, well, I hated it. I could start with that. (laughs) Kirby was drafted in 1943, just three years after that iconic cover with Cap punching Hitler. He was in the uh, 5th Infantry Division, 11th Combat Regiment team. He was in combat for, what, maybe three to four months, and most of it in very poor, typical Northern European winter weather. For for quite a while, he never never spoke about it. Most of those guys, you know, didn't. But um, it was was pretty rough. He had spent so much time in uh, foxholes full of frozen water that, in essence, his legs froze. So he was... um, suffering from fever, couldn't get his boots off. His legs were dark purple, so he couldn't move his legs. And um, went taken back to a hospital in Paris and then transferred to a hospital in England, and then eventually by hospital ship back to New York. Then was discharged, I believe, July of 45. Whoa. This just goes to show that World War II had such a huge impact on Marvel's writers and artists as well as comic book readers, too. Everyone knew someone who was drafted and fighting in the war. And a bunch of creators shared this life experience of fighting in the war. Some of them, like Jack Kirby, battled overseas. Others, like Joe Simon, served on the home front. But the tension and the drama of what really were life and death experiences for so many of these creators, all of that comes through in the comics. You know, they were bringing their experiences back home with them in a really powerful way. And I think also when you just kind of look at all the, you know, like the Fantastic Four or the X-Men or anywhere where you've got the group of superheroes, 
they all work together and they are all protecting each other, which I think is an outgrowth of being in combat. You either protect each other or you all die, one or the other. So writers and artists are drawing from their own experiences of the war. Absolutely. These war stories really don't hold back on the drama. And this fighting spirit that America kind of had like rallied inside of itself at the time, it really comes through in these stories. And what ends up happening is that with these dramatic tales of victory and perseverance, these comics are doing a really, really good job of promoting the war effort. In fact, they do such a good job of promoting the war effort that the government starts to notice. Dun, dun, dun. Right? And then they suddenly want in. We'll hear more about that after this break. Welcome back to Marvel's Declassified. So a lot has changed in the months following Captain America Comics number one first hitting the shelves in 1940, particularly that suddenly America has found itself smack dab in the middle of World War II. And, you know, people are really catching up to this idea of punching Hitler. The American public has become much more invested in the war effort and especially interested in taking down America's enemies, the Germans and the Japanese overseas. And the U.S. government has its own agenda in all of this. They need people to sign up to work in factories and manufacturing on all the supply lines that make the war effort possible. They also need to foster a sense of national pride so people would want to enlist or at least comply with the government's agenda. Exactly. So... That's where propaganda comes in. The government really needs to rally people around this idea that the war is for a noble cause. So this propaganda takes many different shapes. And one of the most surprising ones is comics. Now, we don't necessarily think of comics as a tool for propaganda, but it seems like maybe we should. Right, Lorraine? I mean, we are on Marvel's Declassified, so I feel like Probably. This is actually something I have been really curious about for a while. I knew that comics were somehow linked to American propaganda efforts during World War II, but I just really wanted to know more. So I called up an expert. My name's Paul Hirsch. I'm a historian, and I work on the relationship between the government and comic books and how they secretly used comics for propaganda purposes during the 20th century. Whoa. I mean... I can't believe that's a thing that you can study. I mean, I can't believe it because he does it, but it sounds interesting as hell. I definitely want to hear more. Oh, trust me, you do. So like any good historian, Paul has spent months and months and months of his life digging through government archives, but uh, he didn't start out studying comic books. Really? I went back to grad school for history in the early 2000s and I was studying nuclear weapons proliferation, and I was working at the Los Alamos National Laboratory getting very, very sad about everything that I was reading and studying. And I was just talking to my dad one night about how to cope and what he thought about nuclear weapons. And he started telling me about the duck and cover drills that he had done as a kid in Jersey City in the 1950s. 
And I asked him if he believed them, if he took them seriously, if he thought that sticking his head under a desk would do anything. And I was expecting him to say yes, because, you know, what does a 10-year-old know really about nuclear weapons? But he said, no, I never bought it. Uh, I never believed any of it. And when I asked him why, he said, I read a ton of comic books. That just melted my brain to hear that. It was, it was so interesting. And the next time I found myself in the National Archives, I was supposed to be doing research on nuclear weapons proliferation. And instead, I just started trying to find any relationship I could between comic books and the government and to see if the government had had any role in shaping this stuff that my father had read. And the first thing I found out was that there's no box marked secret government cooperation with the comic book industry. <laughs> Why though? Why? <laughs> it was extremely frustrating because instead of that box, I had to look through about 10,000 other ones. But it was, it was really energizing right from the outset. So why did you particularly get interested in World War II? I was looking through photographs because that's the easiest place to start. And I would be looking at World War II era stuff and realize oh, that guy's in a submarine reading a comic book. This guy's in a bomber reading a comic book. Like, they're selling them on this base. And uh, I realized there's way more to this than I thought. I came across one study that said during the war, uh, at least according to the government's internal sources, that it believed 44% of the U.S. Army identified as regular comic book readers. So that's a huge number. Wow. And it didn't take too long to start looking through the records of all the propaganda agencies from World War II and to realize that these propagandists took comics really seriously. They, They understood or they believed from the very beginning of the comic book industry that this was a powerful cultural form and that they were going to be able to use it to help win these massive battles against fascism and then against communism. Whoa, this is utterly fascinating. Who was pushing propaganda into American comic books? Like, who was doing this? Well, Evan, it was this quasi-governmental agency developed in 1941 called the Writers War Board. The Writers War Board is a group of creative professionals in New York City. On paper, it's staffed all by volunteers. It's staffed mostly by writers of popular fiction. In fact, they're getting a lot of money and assistance from the Office of War Information, which is this big federal agency that's set up to get propaganda out during the war. And what they're trying to do is to create messages that are separate from what the federal government might be saying. They're trying to show that there's a warmer, softer, more natural side to the American war effort. And if we show what Americans are doing and what they care about, then we can get more people involved in this war effort. And they get all kinds of stuff published, from newspaper articles to radio stories. And and the radio stories, they are, wow, they are really something. The United States government presents... This is our enemy. Tonight, millions of Americans are fighting in the armed services or are in overalls, producing supplies and weapons to win the war and make a peace better than any we've ever had before. But we, the people, can win neither our war nor our peace unless we understand whom we are fighting. That's why the government is bringing you this program. This is a program of cruel, hard truth. This is the truth about our enemy. That is like straight-up drama. Seriously. So 
That's from a radio program that aired from 1942 to 1943 under the guidance of the U.S. government's Office of War Information. It was a series of dramatic reenactments of all of the horrible things that the enemy was going to do. This approach is crazy to me because it's so, like, pulpy and in your face, right? But at the same time, you can't help but pay attention. I guess that's what people wanted. Yeah, it's honestly a lot to wrap your head around. And so I asked Paul how comics fit into all of this. There were a few reasons that propagandists landed on comic books. The first is that they were popular with adults. They're popular with people of draft age, of enlistment age, and this is a great way to reach them. On top of that, comics have a number of features that really lend themselves to propaganda. They're easy to read. You can be fairly uneducated and still get the gist of what's being put across to you in a comic book. They're really cheap to print. They're really cheap to buy. They're extremely portable. You can pack so many of them into a small space, and that's of real concern when you're fighting a global war. And the last reason is the one that made me sort of stand up and just walk around the table when I found it in the archives. But these federal propagandists also like comic books because they see them as trash. And the evidence they give is, look at the ads in these things. There's ads for blackhead removers, for like sexual aids disguised as massagers, for you know phony weight loss pills. The ads are a great cover for us, is what they tell themselves, because it's just so unlikely that anyone would look at this and think that Uncle Sam has anything at all to do with it. The comic itself was camouflage for propaganda. Wow, okay. I mean, it's pretty sneaky when you think about it, right? So the two messages that they're trying to send at the same time that are so fascinating to me are this. The first is, we're fighting a war of extermination against Japan, and Germany. And anything that the United States has to do to win that war is okay. Anything that you, as an American soldier, have to do to exterminate these people is okay because you're doing it for the most American of reasons, which is to preserve peace after the war. And without exterminating these people, there can't be peace. So that's your job, and it's okay. We're telling you it's okay. Think of them as less than human and go at it. And how did they depict... Germans and the Japanese in order to dehumanize them. There are plenty of stories with bad Nazis and good Germans in them. And that's the first thing the writer's warboard flags because it's a real problem for them. So they say the entire tone of your approach to Germans has to change. There can't be any more sympathetic characters. There can't be any more funny characters. They're all bad. They're all Nazis. And they're all responsible for what's happening right now. There's no such thing as a German who doesn't bear responsibility for the deaths of Americans and their allies right now. They're all worthy of extermination. With Japanese characters, it's a little different. Early depictions of the Japanese show Japanese characters in these just vicious, viciously ugly animal ways. But at the same time, they're superhumanly strong. They're tenacious fighters. They're bred to fight in the jungles where the United States is, is battling in the Pacific. And so the writer's war board looks at this and they realize this is also a problem for a different reason. And they start to tell publishers in 1944, you you have to cool it with these depictions of the Japanese as somehow subhuman yet also superhuman. You can't have any more of these animalistic Japanese supervillains running around because it's giving people the wrong idea. We have to exterminate 
these people if we want peace. And for that to happen, they have to see Japanese people for what we think they are. And what we think they are is incurably violent and sort of incurably prone to starting wars. You can't have good Japanese people in stories anymore. You can't have sympathetic Japanese people in stories anymore. You have to show sort of regular Japanese soldiers and people doing the awful things that we claim they're doing and showing Americans beating them at it. And it has to be shown to be hard and a real fight. Wow. I mean, that is what propaganda does, right? It, it feeds you a message that they think that you need to hear. Yes. But it is horrifying. <laughs> it's horrifying. So, Evan, I, I want to clarify something. Uh-huh. The Writer's War Board was working with a few different comic book publishers at the time, but there isn't really a record of the War Board working with timely comics. Ah, uh, interesting. The only thing I found was some outreach to Timely fairly early in this project. And I, I do recall some effort on their part to interest Timely, but I don't remember seeing any response. But looking at comics of the time, whether or not they were working with the Writer's War Board, Timely was still putting out pro-American, anti-Axis comics. Yeah, absolutely. There is this explosion in the kind of character that Captain America was. So we see superheroes who previously existed, characters like the Submariner and the Human Torch. They're becoming super patriotic, going headfirst into the war effort more than ever. On the covers of other comics, the Human Torch and his sidekick Toro, they're burning their way through entire battalions of tanks. And then there are new characters like Miss America, who debuts in 1943. She's absolutely very much like Captain America, but more like also the girl next door who is very patriotic. And she's answering the call, right? This is the mm -hmm. call that Simon and Kirby put out in Captain America Comics number one. You know, this is the call that they wanted Americans to answer. The, the very industry in which they work is answering it with this flood of new characters. All of these superhero characters are basically now an active part of the war effort. And guess what? Captain America, he's definitely still an icon of this moment, too. In Captain America Comics number 13 from 1942... Cap is punching a Japanese soldier. We can't say for sure, but that might be Hideki Tojo, who was the prime minister of Japan for most of World War II. Yeah, I mean, that would make sense, right? He's the leader of the Japanese military. And on the cover of that comic, there's a big word balloon where Cap is saying in big, bold letters, you started it, now we'll finish it. And in the lower left-hand corner of this same comic, there's a little insignia that says, remember Pearl Harbor. So all of that sends you this message. For Cap, this is personal. And meanwhile, we have the young allies who are essentially sort of like that classic trope of two kids in a trench coat, you know, pretending to be a grown man, kind of like that. Um, but they're, you know, they're successfully beating up Nazis. They're led by Captain America's trusty sidekick, Bucky Barnes. And they're literally kids who are fighting the Axis powers. And, okay, here's kind of a twist. Paul actually brought up that the Young Allies were an example of a story that the Writers' War Board eventually decided they did not like. Really? Because it didn't make the Germans enough of a real threat. So the board is telling these publishers, you have to stop. Because if Americans think of Nazis as these oafs that kids can beat up, 
they're not in this for the long haul and they are not going to take this seriously. Either way, timely characters were beating up Nazis left and right. <laughs> and it all goes back to, you know, what we were talking about before. You know, our creators had really personal stakes in this fight. The timely path is the one we're most familiar with as Americans, this sort of personal emotional response to, to what we see as evil. You know, if you, if you go back and look at timely issues from the war now, what, what really strikes you is these unbelievably ornate, almost Baroque images of, you know, pitched battles between Japanese soldiers with enormous gadgets and machines and Captain America and the Submariner on the other side. And, you know, huge battles between ships and submarines and superheroes lifting things out of the water and, you know, attacking Germans with, with whole ships or tanks. Uh, so it's that much more emotional, personal reaction to fascism that we see in timely comics. You know, it's really complicated to think about these awful stereotypes, these subhuman disparaging portrayals of people from other cultures that were honestly, yes, being used in service of a bigger cause. But we can't forget that's what propaganda is, right? It's kind of a pledge of allegiance to a larger idea. But it can have huge consequences outside of the context of its presentation. And that's ultimately the thing. We... We don't really know the true impact of this propaganda today. Because if you think about something like Japanese internment in the United States, something that will always be a really ugly part of America's legacy, this dehumanization came from a place of fear and anger and hostility that was potentially inflated and drummed up in part by propaganda. And it's a very sad and painful part of our history that we really cannot forget. No, we can't forget it at all. And remembering this history really makes us aware of the power of our medium and the responsibility that creators have in wielding it. Absolutely. And that continues today. For instance, a number of comics have addressed the history of Japanese internment, clearly voicing it as a mistake in our national history that shouldn't be repeated. So eventually... World War II ends. The Allies emerge victorious. The U.S. government is in a pretty big hurry to get out of the propaganda business, at least for the time being. So funding for the Writers' War Board stops in 1945. But the comics industry is really bigger and more freewheeling than it has ever been. They were distributing comics on army bases. Everyone had comics all the time, it became such a big medium. And see, now that they have this huge audience that has been built by all of this, well, you know what? Paul described it in a pretty dramatic way. The comic book industry exits World War II, you know, almost at the apex of its cultural power because it's, it's unchained. The narrative nationally, at least, becomes less about the urgency of defeating an enemy overseas and more about reimagining the United States as victors, right? And that's a really powerful idea that America latches onto. Yeah, and right after the war, there was this real need to continue to look at the war and the folks that were coming back from fighting the war. And it inspired a lot of comic storylines. Like all winners comics, it's right there in the name. All winners, no losers, not us, uh-uh. <laughs> yes, I mean, we get to meet the all winner squad, which was I mean, pretty much a dream team. We've got Captain America and Bucky and the Human Torch and his pal Toro and the Wizard, who is a man who is just very, very fast and nothing else. Nothing else at all. 
And then there's Namor and Miss America. This was one of Marvel's first real superhero teams, and they continued to fight fascism and live in this post-war glory. These dramatic war stories, they were really continued to grow in scope. We also had Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, who were more like the guys on the ground who were actually fighting the war, as opposed to these lofty superheroes. Right, yeah. So those books follow this fictional military unit through World War II. And, you know, people think of Nick Fury and his involvement with S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Avengers, but this is before all of that. And it's really our first time meeting Nick Fury. One thing about these stories, what really stands out to me is that a lot of them valorize the war. They show the United States Mm. as victors. And there's definitely a movement, probably subconscious, to show the United States as this powerful, triumphant force. And these stories, while they're inspired by the war, they're not exactly realistic. They're definitely larger than life. For sure. Yeah. There's something else at play here, too. You know, time is passing and the reality of war is starting to fade into the past people aren't necessarily looking for war stories anymore. Yeah. And that's where we see the emergence of different genres that we talked about in our first episode. Yeah, the romance comics, the teen humor comics, funny animal comics. People want levity and some normalcy back in their lives too, which, you know, is totally understandable. But the world doesn't stop turning. No, it really doesn't, Lorraine. And, you know, in the decades that followed, America keeps on finding itself embroiled in these global conflicts. One of the most notable being the Vietnam War. And Marvel's response to that war would make a lasting mark on comic book storytelling. More on that after the break. The Vietnam War was a cultural flashpoint in the United States for so many reasons. It became wildly unpopular as a war. It was something that I think pretty universally many people felt like they did not want to be a part of. Protests at universities got extreme. And because these protests were so widely publicized and they were on TVs in everybody's home, a really large social movement happened against the war. I think one of the really important things to remember is that there was a draft going on. This isn't World War II, and there was no longer the collective call to action to just enlist. Young men who were in active duty were forced to go to the front lines of this war, which some of them didn't even really believe in. It's a really traumatizing time for so many people. You know, so people were turning to comics and other media for entertainment as a distraction. And also, while comics certainly did entertain they also did not shy away from what was happening in the world. Right. And even when the Vietnam War ended, the reality of it didn't leave Marvel Comics' pages. And, you know, there's really one Marvel series that I think shows this shift in the wake of Vietnam, and that is this series which is called The Nam. Right. It was first published in 1986, which was 10 years after the war ended, and it ran until 1993. And it was a very honest sort of retrospective view of what Vietnam was really like. It follows a bunch of fictional soldiers, but really focuses on one soldier, Private First Class Edward Marks. Uh-huh. 
he's inserted into the war as a fresh-faced American kid. And he is such a baby that on his first journey to Vietnam, he's flying on the plane and the flight attendant is like, are you okay, honey? And he's like, oh, I just don't like flying very much. Like he's not a big valiant soldier like you see in Captain America clocking Hitler fearlessly across the face. He is a scared kid. And that's before he even gets to the war, which is a really marked turn in how soldiers are being portrayed. In the first issue, the editor actually has a note talking about how all of these stories are based on real things that happened during Vietnam. And so you get really up close and personal with Edward Marks and all of the soldiers and people that he encounters and the very gritty gray areas that everyone is existing in trying to survive this war. Yeah, and when you say gritty, it's not like, you know, psychologically dark or a melodramatic kind of portrayal. No. It's more like the drudgery of what it means to be a soldier in a war in a foreign country. You know, Mm -hmm. standing in lines, waiting to get your shots, waiting to get your boots and your fatigues and your clothes, that boredom where you're sitting around not doing anything and meeting you people Mm -hmm. and having to figure out whether you get along or you don't get along with these people. Or even getting orders that you don't agree with. Yeah, and the reason this story really jumped off the page is that its creators knew what they were talking about. They were Vietnam veterans themselves. And one of them is a straight-up legend in comics. Hi, I'm Larry Hama. I've been in the comic biz for over 50 years. Larry Hama was the editor on The Knob. Larry is, like I said, legendary at Marvel for a bunch of reasons. I wrote... G.I. Joe, uh, a real American hero, from issue one to issue 155 at Marvel. And I wrote uh, Wolverine for eight years for Avengers, Venom. A lot of books. (laughs) A lot of books. (laughs) A lot lot of books, a lot of individual stories. (laughs) Larry has had approximately 153 lives. I was originally going to say 150, but I added three more because who knows? It's really wild. He is such a renaissance man, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you name it, he's done it. And I wish I was exaggerating, but I'm not. A little bit of research on on, on your life shows that you've, comics isn't the only creative profession you've, you've done. You've, you've acted. You did martial arts and painted. Can you talk about like what? I, I played in a rock and roll band for 25 years too. <laughs> he just seems to have sort of the heart of an artist and it doesn't matter what he's creating, but he's creating. Exactly. And Larry was one of the handful of Marvel creators who served in the U.S. Army. He served from 1969 to 1971 during the Vietnam War. After the war, he eventually landed at Marvel. And he loved working in the Marvel offices. The feeling of camaraderie and family at Marvel was just amazing. And it was fun. I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and get into the office. It was that much fun. So Larry Hama's enjoying this chaotic, creative atmosphere. And while he's there, he's editing a bunch of books. He's editing the Conan series, which is based on Robert E. Howard's world-renowned barbarian adventurer. He's also working on a humor magazine called Crazy, which, as you can tell by the adjective in its title, was probably influenced by something else that was coming out at the time. Well, they clearly just didn't want to make anyone mad. Ha, I see what you did there. So Larry Hama was editing those comic book series, among other projects. But then one day, something else, very different, hits his desk. Well, I was sitting in my office and, and Jim Shooter 
walks in one day. You might remember Jim Shooter from our previous episode. He was Marvel's editor-in-chief at the time. He's very tall. He's got this mock-up cover. He had taken a, a G.I. Joe cover of, like, I think it was stalker in camo makeup, you know, like peering through leaves you know, in the jungle. And he had gotten somebody in the bullpen to mock up a logo that said The Nam. And he said, uh, we want to do this book, and you're going to edit it. <laughs> and I said, well, what's it about? And he said, all I have is the cover. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I said, okay. And I told him bluntly, I said, look, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm not going to do Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos. This has got to be done with some respect. And it's, it's got to be done right. So I called in Doug Murray, who's a, a vet. And I said, look, you know, let's, let's do this book and let's make it as accurate as possible within the limitations of the comics code. Larry was very intent on this project happening. This comic had to be more real, more believable than anything else Marvel was publishing at the time. You know, we don't want to have comics where like hordes of uh, Viet Cong come running out from behind perfectly good cover. Make the heroism be about you know, your character's personal commitments and sacrifices rather than the Rambo aspect. Something that we were told all the time in the army was don't be a hero. Don't John Wayne it. Heroes get their buddies killed. What we do is a team effort and no room for cowboys here. You really see this play out in the NOM. It's not about heroes. No. Not exactly. And you know, Lorraine, I remember reading The Nom when it came out. That first cover with the kind of burnt orange and sooty tones, it immediately felt like it was something different. It's less high-octane action and more about this idea that those characters, they're being forged into cogs that are going to be part of this big war machine. And it was presented as this kind of unsettling, at times gruesome experience, something that they weren't always enthusiastic about. You know, you spend a lot of time sort of watching the story in the NOM unfold, knowing that these are just boys that are wildly vulnerable and they're in real danger. You know, you have this palpable sense that that danger is also not going away. Yeah, and it's crazy because I remember feeling like, man, I wonder what else they went through since I saw them last, you know? And Ed and his buddies, some of them weren't his buddies. Some of those guys were his enemies, but everybody felt so grounded. So like the battle scenes, for example, you'd see characters get shot and hurt. Yeah. And they want to be stoic. They want to be like, ah, uh, you know, it's just a flesh wound. They'd be freaking out. They'd be panicking. They'd be screaming in pain. And when you sit and think about it, away from the kind of big adventure story templates that we're used to, this is actually what war is like, right? Like people freak the hell out when they get shot. Yeah. They don't always want to go off and fight. They may desert. And these are all things that you saw in the novel. Were you guys getting a lot of feedback from servicemen directly to Marvel, like letters from people on tour or in training facilities domestically? The majority of the letters we got for the non were from kids. We said, you know, I read the comic with my dad, who was a Vietnam vet, and this opened up a whole dialogue that I never had 
that my father performed. And I don't know how many times I've heard this, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. So I'm very proud of that and very uh, moved by that, that that was able to happen. Towards the end of our conversation, Larry made a point that really stuck with me. I asked him if he thought people at Marvel saw him as an outlier, given his experience in active duty. Yeah, but I don't think... But people don't categorize you like that. You know, I mean, there are lots of people, nobody even knew that they were veterans. And he started listing all these people from the Marvel bullpen, creators whose work I was familiar with, but I never knew they were in the military. Bob Brown had been in the Air Force for years. You know, when Mori Kuramoto died, that's when most of the people at Marvel found out that he had been in the 442nd Combat Brigade in World War II. And he'd gone through France and Italy and, you know, the liberated concentration camps. <laughs> and this is a guy that worked at Marvel for the entire duration of Marvel. <laughs> and, you know, nobody knew that. The thing is that look, soldiers don't talk about it with anybody else other than soldiers. It wasn't like a badge you wore. You know, Lorraine, uh, after talking to Larry, I really wanted to get the take of another creator on a nom. You know, somebody else who'd had the experience of being a veteran. That led me to Don Lomax, who to this day is still writing about the Vietnam War. I just can't get away from it. It's like, a, it's an obsession for me. Oh, my name is Don Lomax. Uh, I worked for Marvel for a period of time writing uh, the NOM back, I think it was, uh, what, 27 years ago. Don is one of those Vietnam veterans that Larry Hama was talking about. He was a writer on the NOM, and he brought his own experience of serving in the military to the book. It helped that Don was already reading the NOM, before he joined the series creative team in 1993. There was a little Hollywood to it, but uh, for the most part, I appreciate the fact that it was uh, historically correct. Uh, I really uh, got into it from the, from the beginning. That, uh, I felt this was something I could identify with. In particular, he really identified with the main character of the NOM, Private Edward Marks. Yeah, he was, he was more of a mild-mannered individual like me. Uh, I was just a civilian stuck in a war, you know. I never did quite become a uh, a part of it. I was I was I always felt like I was uh, watching a movie, you know, like I'm not really not really involved. Of course I was, but I refused to believe that. That's how you got through the day. So that's how I did. Don is still writing about the war in a series called The Vietnam Journal. It tells the story of the Vietnam War year by year. For Don, like for many of our writers, artists, and fans, writing these stories has been a way to process his experience in the war. I, I was I shunned away from it for a while, and then things started calming down a little bit, and I got my head straight uh, and realized that uh, it was just a part of my life that I needed to deal with. And it's not like this is all in some hazy, distant past. Anxieties about war are still part of his life. As I understand it, you have two kids that also served in the military, right? Right. Do you feel like uh, your service inspired them um, to, to 
enter the military as well? At the time, I was afraid it did. But, uh, you know, you're proud of them because they uh, follow in your footsteps or whatever, or, or they have gleaned something from the, from the way that uh, you lived your life, you know. It's also scary as hell. I mean, it's more... I spent more time uh, angsting over uh, my son in uh, Afghanistan than I ever did about myself in Vietnam. It's hard being a parent, but it's harder being a parent of a soldier. Yeah. You must have felt such relief when they both came home uh, safe and sound. Yeah, but don't tell them that. (laughs) They might hear it on this podcast, sir. The thing that's so striking about Don's story to me and the story of the NAM overall is that it must be such an important tool to have books like the NAM where you can work through everything that you have experienced if you were part of that war. Right. So if we go all the way back to the beginning of this story, to the beginning of the episode with that iconic image of Captain America punching Hitler, you take in all that change you can see how Marvel's war stories have grown and shifted and become a lot more complicated over time. Yeah, you know, Captain America in that first story is aspirational, right? Totally. He's this shiny vision of a perfect soldier with a clear moral center who ultimately has his country's ideals at heart. And in a lot of ways, he continues to carry that torch. But as time has passed, he and so many other heroes have started to show something else, a a real deeper honesty about the toll of war and how it affects people, real people and fictional people. And I think the really interesting thing that comes from that is the catharsis that our creators share with us. And I think that's the ultimate hope. The hope really is that Marvel has grown, the people telling these stories have grown to be able to rise to the challenge of portraying war with nuance and complexity so that it shows all the different angles of the experience of war and what it does to us. So whether it's just two guys from New York City who see a looming global threat or it's someone telling their true experience in war, either way, I think that person needs to be very brave to tell that story. Next time on Marvel's Declassified, we look at the long, eventful life of Carol Danvers, also known as Captain Marvel, through some of her key writers. This is going to be the first line in my obituary. You know, Deconic revamped Captain Marvel into, you know, that's that's going to be line number one. And I'm cool with that. And we'll find out what her evolution across the decades can tell us about the fight for women's rights. You can hear this episode next week, wherever you get your podcasts. Marvel's Declassified is a co-production of Marvel and Sirius XM. This episode is produced by Lorraine Sink, Evan Narsis, M.R. Daniel, and senior producer Rebecca Seidel, with help from Jorge Estrada, Chrissy of Berlin, and Zachary Goldberg. The creative producer is Harry Goh. The executive producer is Jill Duboff. The development manager is Brad Barton. And the story editor is Leela Day. 
The fact checker is Natalie Mead. The episode was mixed by Matthias Winter with help from Rye Dorsey, and the theme music is written and performed by Edith Mudge. Special thanks to Sarah Amos, Dan Buckley, Daniel Fink, Ricky Purden, Joe Casada, Shane Romani, Ron Richards, Larissa Rosen, and Stephen Wacker. Listen anytime with new episodes releasing every week wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been listening and you want to share your favorite snippet of Marvel history, your questions or comments, tweet us at Marvel using the hashtag Marvel's Declassified. Plus, you can tweet at both of us. You can tweet me at Lorraine Sink or Evan at EvNark. Um, all right, Larry, you always wear black. Every, every picture I've ever seen you wear, you're always wearing black. Why? I'm a New Yorker. It's also, look, you know, I mean, I, I hate to get up every morning going, well, what color shirt am I going to wear? You know, it's like, if, if everything you have is black, you don't, you don't have to make these horrible choices every day.